this podcast is devoted to the prospect that behind every woman is a great story. Not a good story, a great story. And you know, to get these stories, I have to listen, but I also carry my digital audio recorder with me wherever I go. So when I was in my hometown in South Georgia, in Albany, Georgia, a few weeks ago, there's a woman I really wanted to talk to, actually a couple. And um, when you get to a certain age, if you've paid attention, then you can recite history. You are living history. And um, this woman today is just its amazing, the amount of history that she lived through and was witness to and was a part of, was steeped in. So I hope you enjoy. I grew up in a bus myself. My father put together a bus. And so it was an entirely different situation, but I knew what bus life was like. What is the sound of one man listening? This is Man Listening a fresh podcast featuring the stories of strong women who bounce back. Man listening, because every woman deserves to be heard. Hey there, I'm Stuart Watson. Welcome to Man Listening. Nancy Jones was a friend of my family's growing up. She was a little bit older than me. Just a few years can make a big difference when it comes to what she lived through. Uh, You will hear her talk about the integration of public schools in my hometown in Albany, Georgia, where Martin Luther King Jr. launched the Albany Movement. And you will also hear her talk about being part of the radical left, specifically the Students for Democratic Society, called SDS, and then her life on a commune called The Farm, which was in Middle Tennessee, uh, south of Nashville, in the countryside. It is a fascinating life and she was awake and alive and alert and active for all of it. I hope you enjoy my friend Nancy Jones. Where were you born? Albany, Georgia, P.B. Putney Memorial Hospital. And so you grew up in Albany? I grew up in Albany, went to Albany High School, went to Mamie Brosnan, Albany Junior High, and Albany High School. Class of? 65. Was that class integrated? That was the first class that was integrated. How did that go? Um, There were six girls. Every day at lunch, they would come in the room as a group. Six black girls. Yep. And they would come in and sit down at it. They would pick out a different table every time. And whoever was sitting at that table would get up and leave. And uh, they never sat at a table that I was sitting at, so I was never faced with what to do about that. I never saw anything grim or horrible that happened, but I knew that their lives were just, you know, really, that they were really some of the bravest people I'd ever seen. Um, I only shared a class with one, and I'm still not sure which one it was. Our teacher was a known John Bircher, social history or something, and and she had to do a book report, and I just remember watching her get up from the back of the room and walk to the front knowing that she was going to give this book report, that she was going to have an African-American accent, and she was going to be the butt of everybody's laughter. People were going to laugh at her. And And she got up and walked, and she had her head held up high, and I thought, this is one of the bravest things I've ever seen. I just really admired her. I didn't do anything. I wasn't a a help to them in any kind of way, but I was a witness to it. And then years later, I guess it would be 2003 or four, I was working on a portfolio um, to get to to be um, accepted into FSU art program and Master of Fine Arts. Remembered that I have my high school annual and in that high school annual is a portrait of every one of those girls. So I drew those. 
And um, then I had an opportunity to have a show, and I thought, I can't, I had permission from the people who I did directly, but I didn't have permission of these women to show their, their portraits. So I started, and I, as an investigative reporter, you know that this was not easily done, tracking down these six women. They had, as a surprise to me, they had no connection with each other. They were not, you know, a group of people that decided to do this. They were just who showed up. And one by one, I tracked them all down. And I did what I called a circle of trust, where I would, I would get somebody that knew me and knew my family or knew, you know, trusted me to talk to somebody else who knew me so that by the time I got to that person, they would have, I, I didn't cold call anybody. Oh, you know? uh, smart. So, yeah. And so by the time I got to them, they were willing to talk to me and I got permission. And um, I ended up getting all their permission to put the pictures together and they are now at the Albany Civil Rights Movement Museum. So amazing. My, my tribute to them. So like I said, and I didn't so do anything they at didn't the time. have a reunion. I, tr I tried to have a reunion of them um, for that event. We, we had a little ceremony, but they couldn't all show up. They, they all had different things going on. They had health issues. Three lived here in Albany. And of the three that lived here in Albany, two have died since then. And one lived in Roxbury, Massachusetts, and she has died. I'm out of touch with the one in, in uh, Alabama. And then one in Atlanta is a good friend of mine or a Facebook friend. Oh. And I would like, I'm, you know, she's on my list of people to go see next time I go to Atlanta and have lunch with her. They had certain people that they thought were, you know, their friends while they were while they were going through that. Supportive. Mm -hmm. Supportive. Not someone who was laughing at right, them right, or right. making life hard for right, them, right. but someone who did. It's those small acts of kindness. Small acts of kindness. That's what it was. One of them sings well, and she was in the chorus, and she apparently made friends with some of the people in the chorus and that sort of thing. But she said she was the one. She's the one that I know best, and she's the one that she has told me all kind of interesting things. And one of them, she says, we weren't interested in crashing your social life. We just wanted the education that you could get here. She said when she walked into the typing room and saw a, like all these tables of typewriters, she was just flabbergasted because they didn't have anything like that there. They took turns on just a few typewriters and walked into the, the, the lab and there were all these microscopes. There was one microscope in their, in their lab. They took turns looking in it. When you turned 18, I gather you graduated Albany High School. Mm -hmm. What Actually, did... I was 17 when I graduated. <laughs> Congratulations. Off school, yeah. Where did you go, what did you do, and why? I went to Wesleyan and Macon because I didn't have good enough grades to get into Agnes Scott, which was my mother's first choice. I lasted there less than a year because I got kicked out. I got kicked out twice. And I wasn't really a hellraiser or party animal or trying to do anything. You know, I was actually pretty innocent. But the first time, I had a boyfriend who was going to school at Mercer. He had this brilliant scheme that he, he wanted to show me his room because he had cool art on the walls and he wanted me to see his room. And it, it's honestly true. <laughs> he did have great we, art. We did have, well, I mean, we had, we had the kind of relationship where he was not just luring me in there to take advantage of me. He really was, he was a lovely guy. I would have married him if he hadn't died, but that's another whole story. He figured out a good time that we could sneak in. There was all this stuff happening on campus and the place would be, so we snuck in and uh, I think he just went down the hall to the bathroom or something and all of a sudden the door opened and it was the house mother. And she was investigating some burn marks on the doors that, she, that people had been sticking firecrackers under each other's doors and she just wanted to see the burn marks on the other side. So she was as surprised to see me as I was to see her. So I got kicked out for that. 
And, uh, for being a boy's room. For being in a boy's dorm room, right. A year later, people had co-ed dorms after that, because I went to Emory at Oxford after that, and the dorms were co-ed. But, um, so I got kicked out of there. At that point, I was dating a law student, and he had an apartment, and I was going to parties at his house. And uh, I came home one night, and the house mother called me aside, and it, it all came out that I was going, you know, and I was not supposed to be in a, in a bachelor apartment as, as, a, as a freshman, even though I was at the age of a sophomore, taking sophomore classes, and it was my second year there. So out I went again. <laughs> so I got my electives at um, Georgia State and Atlanta School of Art, and, uh, and I had a wonderful time. That was great. great. I got some good art classes. And when you graduated, you decided to do what? By that time, I had gotten involved with the Great Speckled Bird. And, uh, in my and for people year, who don't remember yeah. that, it was? It was a, an underground newspaper. It was, uh, at the it, time that I went, to, it was the second largest weekly paper in Georgia. It was, big, it was a big time underground newspaper. It was in league with all the other underground newspapers in the country. So and the best known underground. Very, well, would... it was very well respected. And it was a wild scene. You know, it was a wonderful scene. I could write a book about it. Um, I still go once a year to reunions of, of the people that I worked with there. It's wonderful. Give me a sense of what it was like. Like, where did you go physically to to work, and what did the, you do? The bird moved around quite a bit. The first original birdhouse uh, was uh, on 14th Street, and it was raised to the ground by developers who had bought up the land supposedly to build high-rises, which are actually there now, but... They didn't for years, so it was fairly obvious that they just removed us. And so it, it bounced. It was in different places at different times, and things happened with each one of the. One of them was was firebombed, and um, because the 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 bird had enemies. You know, they were they were uncovering things. They were they were telling stories. What kind doing investigative of enemies type. would they? Um, well, it was a radical rag, you know, so um, it was a lot about civil rights. It was a lot about corruption in, in the local government, in the Atlanta government, about capitalism, you know, and, and, and pr practices that were, I was more, there were definitely reasons why the powers that be didn't want the Great Speckled Bird out, you know, that, that, that was not hard to figure that part out. I was involved, I did layout and art, mostly layout. And so I was involved with the, it, it was an interesting combination of, of artists and musicians. And when I say musicians, I mean people that were interested in music and, and the music scene in, in, in Atlanta and, um, and politicos. And over time, the politicos got to be more, you know, got to be more political and less artistic, but that was what was happening, you know, in the world. And I got involved, I, when I was at Emory, I got involved in, in SDS, the Student for, for Democratic Society. I got involved with, then there was kind of a, a more of a national organization of, of those that I, I was somewhat involved with. And what then, was the national organization? Well, the Students for Democratic Society. Now, were they violent? The Students for Democratic Society evolved, I mean, it, it was, none of the, they're all a moving target. You can't say right. what it was like at any given time because it was different at different times. In the late 60s, there were divisions in the organization. Then the radical youth movement split into two parts. There was RIM 1 and RIM 2. RIM 1 ended up renaming themselves the Weathermen. And the Weathermen were the ones that had, would, had bombed some buildings and went underground. And then there, had, there was such a thing as the Weather Underground. And there were times when, when, that, when that, it was kind of a, a boom, you know, it happened and they went underground. During that time, 
most of them passed through Atlanta at some point or another, going from place to place. They were still working. They were still, you know, trying to, quote, raise consciousness and, and make connections with people. And, and how did Nancy Jones of Albany, Georgia, regard these various things? Like, where I just did thought she... everything was just so interesting. You know, I just thought it was all really interesting. I, I was like zealot, you know, I just wanted to be there. The violence part did scare me some. I mean, I... My particular contingent, the particular contingent of, of SDSers in Albany were Rim, Rim, two, the nonviolent, the nonviolent ones, and so. But and they that's were, where you. But went. They, this was like people who were my. These were their friends, you know. I mean, before they divided, they were all in the same organization, and and they would come through, and and I was work. I worked one summer, um, an SDS print shop. The guy I worked with and I are still good friends to this day, and uh, it was called Haymarket, and and he taught me how to run a printing press. And it was while I was working there that I met all these people. And I went to the post office one day and looked, and there was a poster of the 10 most wanted people in the United States at that time. And I had met nine of them <laughs> within the past month or so. Were they the most wanted because they were murderers? Because, or? No, they were the most wanted because, because the FBI was really trying to crack down on, on the weathermen. And this was J. Edgar Hoover. Yeah. Nowadays, if you're on the most wanted, you've killed people. Right. Yeah, they, they weren't murderers. There were, I think some people died in some of those. I think some, some um, weather people died. I think right. one of the big explosions was, was a, a factory, a munitions factory in a basement in a townhouse that blew up yeah. and some of the people. And I actually had a friend, um, it's interesting because I've just recently reconnected with her a little bit, who was actually living under an assumed name and had been involved with that. I get into other people's stories. I hope, I know. <laughs> How did you get from Speckled Bird, STS, to the farm? Was that the next incarnation? While I was working at the Great Speckled Bird, one of the women that worked with me, a dear friend, uh, went to some women's conference and came back with a girlfriend who had two little boys. And um, this woman had serious problems. She had a drug addiction problem that was related to the fact that she had a serious pain problem. And people just don't get help that need it. And she got to the point where she felt like she couldn't handle her oldest boy. Her, her youngest one was, was still kind of cute and sweet, but the older one was eight, and he was starting to be a lot of work. And he had serious emotional problems. She said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take his father to court and force him to take him. And I thought that was about the worst thing I could imagine for a child to have his parents fight over who didn't get him. And so I said, why don't you let me take him for a while and let you, you know, figure out what you want to do. And I had him for a while, and he was a real handful. And um, in the course of things, a friend of mine went to the farm and came back and they, she said, it's not for me, but it might be for you. You might, might be just what you need. So I took Danny up there and um, Danny hated it. What Danny hated was, at least when he was Atlanta, he could see his mom. But when we moved up there, he was cut off from his mom and that made him crazy. She really didn't want him. It was decided. One of the people that was you know, working the, the, the membership type situation said, where would you go? He, he didn't want to be there. They, he said, where would you go if you, if, if you weren't here? He said, I'd go to my dad. And so I called his dad, and his dad was going, went, oh, my God, I can't believe Arlene did this, and sent plane fare to me and, for me and him so I could bring him to his family. So she was just, it was all a lie about the, her husband. He, was, he wanted that kid. So that's how I got to the farm. <laughs> so the kid, Danny, Danny, did not stay at the farm. He did not stay. He went to live he, with his father. He went, and it actually proved to be the best place for him. And then, but you went back to but the I farm. But I stayed. 
Why did you love it? What appealed to well, you? Well, a little bit about what I told you before. The movement in Atlanta, I got involved with it because I could see that they were right about the injustice. You know, I could see that, that their analysis of how things worked was that the, the, the world was just fucked. You know, it was, it, was, it was a bad situation and we just need to do something. And, and everybody was just kind of fragmenting. And I went to the farm and it was like, it had been there, it's, it had been there a year. A year or two years? Let's see, I came there in 73. Yeah, two years. And, you know, you could hear hammers banging, houses being built, truck um, carts being pulled by horses full of crops. Of the, they had just, you know, it was August, you know, so it was the harvest time. And everything was just cool. And everybody was so sweet. And everybody just loved you. So people are not going to understand this. So we have to say, where was this? The farm was in southern central Tennessee. Around what county? What was the It was closest? in Lewis County, but it was around the edge of Lewis County. So most of the business they did was in Lawrence County. So close to Columbia, Tennessee. Uh, okay. So not mountains, no, farmland, no, relatively it, it was flat. Rolling, hill, rolling hills. Rolling hills. Yeah. And it was tillable. It was, you know, yeah. you can grow things. Okay. A little bit of the background of the farm. There was a guy named Stephen Gaskin who was mm -hmm. a teacher at Southern at San Francisco State University. And those days they started this thing called free schools where they had these open university classrooms. And he, he taught creative writing. He was an English teacher. And he started, you know, people were just tripping their brains out. This was the mid sixties and, and, and people were writing about their experiences. And he sort of followed that because that seemed interesting. He got into doing uh, psychedelics and um, studying. He, he, he was an incredibly brilliant person and, and, and uh, he started this class. It had different names at different times, but it eventually became what you call Monday night class. It outgrew the classroom. It outgrew a lounge. It outgrew a church. It outgrew a theater, and it wound up being in a in a um, a rock and roll hall with two thousand people there every 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 Thursday every Monday night. So it was called Monday night class. Some of his students put together transcripts of his talks, and it became a book called Monday night class, which sold well. What was this class? It was about whatever came up. And he just had a tremendous amount of charisma. Basically what it came down to was there are spiritual teachings that are universal to all religions. And if you live by them, you can trip. <laughs> you know, it'll get you through your acid trip. It'll get you through life, you know. And, and so this was all about just exploring that, you know, and breaking out of the way things were done and doing things a different way. And so he went on a book tour and, and the people in the class were going like, well, what's going to happen to us? We want to go with you. And he said, you can come with me if you can keep it together yourself. You know, you got, you got to be on your own. So different groups of people put together buses and created a caravan of more or less 60 buses. Every bus has its own story. So some joined later, some, you know, trailed along behind, some broke down and, had, you know, all kinds of, this was before everybody had cell phones too. So if, if you got lost, you were lost. Basically, it was a group of 60 buses. So of course, this was a large thing. You know, the, the national news was keeping up with it. And they went from place to place, and Stephen would talk. What interesting is, I grew up in a bus myself. My father put together a bus. And, so, and it was a an entirely different situation, but I knew what bus life was like. But this was before my time. I didn't, the caravan came through Atlanta, and I went to see them. They were in Piedmont Park, and I was not impressed. I was at that time, I was involved in the, in the women's liberation and I, I remember what I was wearing. I was wearing um, hiking boots and army pants and a black t-shirt and my hair was whacked off really short. 
And these ladies come up to me and they have long hair and they're wearing flowing garb and they were asking me questions and I was answering questions. And they said, they kind of swirled around me and they said, oh, you're so speedy. You need to slow down. You'd feel much better if you did. And I just felt like, <laughs> who are these people? Brush them so off. I was not impressed. Yes. So then two years later, they came through again with a band. By this time, they had, once they got back to San Francisco, from the, I'm jumping around, once they went back to San Francisco on the caravan, they said, we can't disband now, we're a thing. And so they came, they went back to Tennessee because they thought that their understanding was that the land was cheap in Tennessee. So they went back to Tennessee and over eventually found some land and bought it and settled there. And they settled there. They All they had was these buses. Commune. Is that accurate? Yeah. It was, it, we didn't call it a commune. We called it a community. It was a community of communes. And some of them were huge. When I got there, most people had started moving. Some people still lived in buses. Some people lived in army tents. They got a huge um, shipment of army tents and put them up. I lived in army tents for the first two years. And then some people had built, were starting to build houses. And so that's, that, things were just really looking up when I got there. They had been through some, the first winter they called Wheatberry Winter because they almost starved. Then the second winter was a little bit better and, that, and I came, they were getting ready for the third winter. And Wheatberry, did they live off of Wheatberries? They berries? lived off Wheatberries, yeah. They, were, they, they just had hardly anything. It was just, by the time I got there, they had been growing soybeans and were, had a soy dairy and were making tofu. And, you know, it was, you know, they, they, we had our own food. And, and, could, could, and had a canning and freezing operation and put up food for the winter. And so the, the first winter I was there was, was pretty, it was rough, but it was comfortable. So this isn't a bunch of dope smoking hippies no, that don't do any no, work. I mean, they were people. really working they were hard. hard working people. They've kept old beat up tractors running and, and trucks. And I mean, they had, a, they had a motor pool, they had a farming crew. Uh, we had a midwife crew. All my children were delivered on the farm by midwives. That's and I and a book publishing company. And I got to I went to work in the book publishing company because I was an artist and I did illustrations. And I helped illustrate a book called Spiritual Midwifery that was groundbreaking in the um, natural childbirth movement. Living in an army tent and almost starving does not sound like a whole lot of fun. So like, why the hell do it? Well, I think one of the main things that kept me there was I just really loved the people that I got to know. You know, people people came to the farm because basically they were just really good-hearted people that wanted to do whatever they could to make a difference, about the, which was the same reason I went. What, the decision I made to leave politics and, and join and, and align myself, so to speak, with spirit was that I would rather do something positive than something negative. Politics was out breaking down the system. The system looked to me like it was crumbling on its own. I wanted to be part of building something better. Whether we did or not is the big question. We're still a community. We still have Facebook pages where we discuss all this at great excruciating detail. And everybody has their own story. And you know, the farm could spawn a million books. There, there have been some, I've actually written a book, but I've never published it <laughs> about Mine was a, was a fiction because I didn't, want to, I didn't want to write about my friends. What's your gut level take? Was it worth it? Yeah. Yeah, the friends that I had that I developed there, I'm so grateful that I'm still connected to them. But, I mean, I've been through some hard times recently. My husband died of cancer. My, my, I'm taking care of my mother. I, can't, I don't get out much. I don't have you know, much of a social life. But every day I can get online and just talk to my friends. And, and if I need, I, there's a prayer group. I can say, 
you know, while my husband was going through things, I could say, you know, pray for him. And I would just get all these emails back from my dear friends saying, we've got you, you know, we're here for you. We're that kind of monkey, you know, we need that kind of connectivity. And it doesn't matter whether it's your next door neighbor or a friend in Canada, if they say, honey, I, I hear you and I, I'm concerned for you, you know, that helps you. Meanwhile, there were a bunch of really conservative people back in Albany, Georgia, who were going, Nancy's lost her mind, you know? <laughs> um, so let me t ask about a number of misconceptions. Uh, a, that Stephen Gaskin and the farm were all about growing dope and smoking dope. I was not really, while I was on the farm, as concerned about what people in Albany, Georgia thought. I've been gone <laughs> from Albany for quite some time. I was more concerned about what people in Atlanta thought. And I got cut off from them pretty pretty completely. Oh, from the it, SDS it, it, there was, there was and the speckled bird. When I went back and, and reconnected, but there was years there where I just, it was like I ceased to exist for, for them. And it turns out they weren't as mad at me as I thought. I just, I couldn't deal with the contradictions. But as far as Albany, Georgia is concerned, when I came to Albany, I just, um, I didn't talk much about what what my life was like. Um, it was a, a, a grass church. It started out on, in psychedelics, and there had been like you know, part, one of the things that happened in the caravan was they that Stephen decided that we weren't going to do processed psychedelics. We were only going to do natural psychedelics. No acid. No acid. No mescaline. That no, nothing in a pill. You know, like that. And no, and no, none of the other stuff. You know, like no, heroin and a, something from nature. Yeah. Not processed. Yeah, not right. man-made. And things that had kind of kind of a history of being. You know, things that people use for spiritual purposes. We did grass when we could get it. We weren't well to do. So, and there was a there was actually an agreement not to um, grow it. In, on the farm. I don't know how they got it. That was, you'd never ask, you know, it was like, don't ask, don't tell, you don't know, you don't, you can't say. So I don't know where all the, I mean, I'm, I know now, you know, but at the time I didn't know where it came from. But there were, just before I got there, there was a group of people that took it upon themselves to grow some. And they didn't notice that they were right next to the railroad track. The trains coming through saw the patch, you know, and so there was a bust. And Stephen was not involved with that at all, but they busted three people and then they busted Stephen just for being in charge of the place. And so he went to jail. They, the, the four, all four of them went to jail and spent a year there. That's crazy. It was, it was crazy. It was a sad time. So the history of the farm took place over about how many decades? Like from well, the... it's still there. Um, so 1971 was when the, when, the, when the caravan landed. The farm shut down for a while. Nobody could even come in. It's, it's still somewhat shut down. They're not doing... They used to do event. We we had this thing every year called Ragweed, which was a gathering of the tribes. And, and uh, what is a tribe? Us, you know, we were. I mean, we were the gathering of the the people that were us. So the various, like, how many communes would be a part of this community? In its heyday, which would be nineteen seventy nine, eighty one, right around in there, it was fifteen hundred people. And like I said, there were there were some long. There was actually one house called the Long House. It had over forty people in it. There, I lived in a house with about thirty people in it, and uh, that, so there were lots of big houses like that. What happened was my husband and I split up. I had two little boys, and so I moved up to the New. York, there was a, we had satellite communities as well, and he moved back to New York, and I moved up there so we didn't have to do our kids back and forth. I didn't want to do that, and um, uh, that that's another part of my long story. But while I was there there was the beginnings of a revolt on the farm and it was we had what's called the changeover and what happened was um it wasn't 
that well organized. You know, I mean, the, the, the organization that we had just sort of ceased to, to be, we were too poor. We were too, um, there were kids that didn't have, whose needs weren't being met and parents who felt like they had to leave to take good care of their kids. So we started having people just leave. Once, once one group of people started leaving, then, then everybody, we had a, like a mass exodus. And I, I got a letter from a friend that says, the social life here is wonderful, one goodbye party after another. But it was like a huge, massive divorce. It was very painful. We had all kinds of businesses and, and, and things that we held in common. And to survive, the board of directors at that point, I mean, the, the government of the farm evolved over time, but at that point we had a board of directors, we still do. And they decided to change it from a collective to a, 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 a cooperative. And this meant you had to be able to support yourself to live there, and that was huge. The, at first, the people that were leaving were the, were the capable people, you know, the ones who were just carrying so much of the load that they couldn't carry it anymore and felt like they weren't doing justice to their own children. They could, they could do better for their families. But then the powers that be at that time came to the realization that if the farm was going to not just collapse and default, it had to be figured out a way that the people could take care of themselves, could, could have the farm. And so they, basically it came down that you had to be able to support yourself. And of course, it's in the middle of nowhere with you know depressed part of the country. So people had to leave to survive. They had to go home you know, or go figure out how to make a living someplace else. So it, it went from you know 1,500 people to about 250 in a fairly short period of time. And that period of time was called the changeover. To the credit of the people that survived, they paid off all the debts and solidified the farm, started some businesses that are you know still making it today, and there you go. And people around there really, you were good neighbors. I mean, we, we tried to be good neighbors, and to some people considered us good neighbors. Of course, there were people that were, we had, the, the KKK was founded in Pulaski, Tennessee, which is about a 20-minute drive from, <laughs> from the farm. And we had, you know... Um, you had people of color? Incidents. We did have some, not nearly as many as you would think we would, but we did. Uh, it was not appealing to black people. And to so what a, did the KKK poverty. have against you guys if you um, farm the land? We were just too the... weird for them. Ah. <laughs> just too weird. Long hairs, you know. That... You know, it's not like they're, like, armed robberies or carjacking people. They're like trying to grow wheat, for God's <laughs> like, sake. Make like tofu, food, you yeah. know. In the total of it, I would say, of course, everybody's got their own, but I would think mostly you could say that the farm got along pretty well with its neighbors because we were benign, because we were hard workers, and people respect hard work. Yeah. You know, they see it. They know it when they see it. Now, because Stephen was a charismatic leader, there were probably some people who said it's a cult. Right. It's a cult of personality. Still do, and and that's part of the changeover. I didn't I didn't mention was that people turned against Stephen a lot. Right. And he he was pretty much up. He stayed there until he died. You know, he lived he lived on the farm, and I considered him a personal friend. I used to go visit him and hang out with him and stuff. I mean, I I worked at a book publishing long uh, book publishing company long enough to where we we worked together on some projects. So he was my friend, but um, he. He succumbed somewhat to power corrupts, absolutely. And so what's the difference between the farm today and the farm that you... The farm today is really more like a land um, trust. And everybody owns their house, but they don't own the, own the land under their house. And um, there are businesses that are fairly prosperous, and there are people who live well, and there are poor people. If you wanted to live on the farm, you would have to figure out a way to 
navigate an incredible amount of obstacles, not because they're being put in your way, but just because it's hard. It's hard to make money there. You know, you'd have to you'd have to figure out how to su support yourself. That's the hardest part. If like for instance, one of the one of the biggest growth things on the farm is is people retiring that used to live there. They they they've gone and you know made a good living somewhere. They they they've sell their house. They got a nice nest egg. They come back and build a nice house on the farm and live on their retirement. So so it's kind of middle class in that kind of way, which is in a way kind of sad. You know you can't just go to the farm. The farm is no longer a sanctuary for people who need a place to go because they need help. I have to ask you, what was your experience in giving birth and in assisting as a as a midwife? I was not a midwife. Um, but what was your, what's the difference in your birthing experience than if you just went into a birthing suite at the nearest hospital? Mm -hmm. Of course, when I had my babies, there weren't birthing suites at hospitals. So those birthing <laughs> suites at the hospitals evolved out of what we were doing a room. To, to, to meet the needs of people that could see that that's how it ought to be. I had my first baby in an army tent. And there was a, a doctor in attendance, but he was there to learn from the midwives how to do this. I mean, he, he was there as, a, as an observer. Um, the woman who delivered my first child, she's still a really good friend. She had, at that point, delivered lots of babies. It was an, a, a fairly uneventful birth. It was long because I was a new bomb. I mean, it, it went for a long time, but no, no complications. Um, my second baby went even faster. And then I had left the farm and come here, and my husband and I had split up, and I had met, I had married another man, and we went up there to have Corbett because I couldn't imagine having a baby in the hospital after after those two birthings. So I went up there, and my one of my friends put put us up, and uh, he was 10 pounds, and I was 47, and so he was a high risk baby. That was the birthing that one of the midwives later told me. She said, if you had if you had been in the hospital, we would have done. A, they would have done a C-section. The birthing stalled. They did what's called the the Gaskin maneuver because Ina Mae Stevens' wife was 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 the head midwife, and she had learned this from the Guatemalans. If you get on your hands and knees, it changes the way things go, and you can get a stuck baby out. And so I had I, he was what's called a shoulder dystocia, and and so they had to roll me over my hands and knees and they got him out and he was fine you know it was great it was it was a good birthing but it was a lot of work <laughs> god almighty that's excruciatingly painful <laughs> like i don't understand how you can even support I yourself you, you, i have to laugh because there was a ina may at one point in, in in spiritual midwifer which was the book that we put out said don't think of it as pain think of it as a very intense sens sensation and when I wrote, I wrote, I wrote story, I wrote up all three of my birthdays because I, I write, and uh, and I said, I'm sitting here looking in the eyes of the woman <laughs> that said that and laughing like, don't think of this as pain, but basically it was just a hard day's work, you know, and it just had to be gotten through. There, there comes a time when it's like, there's no way back from here, you know, <laughs> there's only forward, so you just do do what you got to do. And a healthy baby. I had a nice fat baby. And with shoulder dystocia, you can dislocate their shoulders. He, he, he wasn't dislocated. He, they got and him out. You can also they knew how to do it. No forceps. See, there are, there are lost arts, and that's one of the whole points of midwifery, is that there are lost arts in baby delivery. They just immediately revert to, you know, cutting people open and invasive things. The midwives knew how to deliver um, breech babies. They could deliver breech babies routinely. 
you know, which now if you're in the, if you're in the, go to the hospital and your baby's breech, you're getting a C-section. They're not even going to try because they don't know how. They don't know the, the, the nuances of birthings, you know. How much of that is due to the fact that for generations the OBs were all men? Right. Is that it? I'm sure that is. You mentioned being involved in women's rights. I don't want to lose this. What do you think are the misunderstandings? Because when you say women's rights, um, everybody says, oh, they were burning bras. <laughs> and I heard somewhere that that never even happened. <laughs> yeah, I think um, And so what are the misunderstandings about what you meant, like what you were fighting for? When I first got to the farm, I came from women's liberation. And as a matter of fact, print shop was mostly lesbians. I was not, but they were. And um, so, I mean, I, I was involved at that point with the beginnings of gay rights and that kind of stuff too. And so when I got to the farm, like the men did all the heavy labor, the women took care of the kids and changed the diapers. And so we were locked into these gender roles and I kind of hated it. One thing, I was single, I didn't have children. That, this was a point where I actually got to, fairly early on, I got to actually make a difference. Um, I went to, the married women sort of had more social position than the single women. The deal at that point was the single women would go and take care of married women's babies so married women could work. And I went to um, Ina May, who was Stephen's wife, and I said, this, is, this seems to be backwards. I have skills that, I, that are useful at the book publishing company. I mean, I came here knowing how to do some things that I could do there, but I'm having to take care of somebody else's children, and I can't, I can't work. You know, that just doesn't seem smart. And the next Sunday in Sunday services, Stephen said, we're not going to do that anymore. <laughs> you know? So I, apparently she went home and told Stephen that, and Stephen decided, well, that makes perfect sense. And so I was sort of liberated at that point. So I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. You know, this thing you can push up against, and it, it moves. Um, but I was still uncomfortable with the gender roles. When I went to work, at the first went to work at the book publishing company, I went in there and they said, well, what can you do? I said, I can run a press, I can do work the camera, you know, I can, I can I do you know, all these different skills. And, and they said, well, we don't believe that. <laughs> this is not women's work. Can you make curtains? And so my first job at the book publishing company was I made the curtains. And I wound up in the art department. I was talking to a visitor at one point, a young guy, who, I mean, he was just barely out of being a teenager. And I said something about that, that I thought it wasn't fair or something like that. And he said, I just don't understand why the society has come to devalue what women do so much. And that was like, for me, just this major paradigm shift. And that was that not, it's not that we were de being devalued because we were having to do these degrading jobs. It was that the jobs were degraded. That what we were doing was actually the important stuff. And that that was a pivotal change for me to, to see it that way. And I got to see that, you know, having babies and, 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 and raising children and doing the and canning and freezing and, you know, all that kind of stuff, that was all important stuff. It had to be done. Eating. What's that? Eating yeah. and delivering healthy children. Right. Pretty important. Feeding a family. Right. Pretty damned important. So why did you leave? I left because my husband and I split up, and he moved to the New York farm, because he was from New York. My son broke his arm, and I, had, I called my brother to ask him for money, because I didn't have any money. And he said, come home. <laughs> I will give you my house. So I, I, I decided to come home. I needed help. One of the most compelling stories that you told me 
was what happened at your father's funeral. Will you tell me that story? Like, what happened? How did he die, and what was your experience at your father's funeral? Well, because of the, the kind of work that I did, um, I mean, being involved in radical politics and all this kind of stuff, I always kind of considered my father the pig. You know, basically, he lent money to poor people at higher rates during a time when, when um, redlining was how uh, my grandfather started the business and my father ran it for, for a generation and then my brother ran it. And during that time, uh, during the Civil Rights Movement, um, laws changed so people were able to um, get bank loans that couldn't get bank loans before. But during, the, during my upbringing and the, the fortune that my father was able to, to accumulate was basically based on the fact that competent and capable black people in Albany couldn't get a bank loan. They had to go to my father for a bank loan and they had to pay higher rates for those loans. Um, so he kind of lived in a little slice of, I don't know how to describe it, it's like being alongside a river and just having your, your own little, little sluice through there where the, the goods came through. But, um, and I never felt comfortable with that. I always felt like that was just really wrong. And so I thought my father was, was, was part of the problem. Nice guy, you know, and very civic-minded, you know, very involved in the arts and things like that. He died, he was walking on the treadmill at the Y and just went out like a light. Uh, apparently had a stroke had our visitation at the funeral home, there was a line that went outside and down the street, around, around the building. We shook hands with people for hours coming through, all kinds of people, black people and white people. And they were telling me things like, I, I don't know what I would have done without your father. I would not have been able to make it without your father. Um, so apparently what dad was doing while he was lending people money at, at raised rates, which were regulated by, I mean, this was a regulated thing, he was helping them figure out how to manage their finances. He would consult with them and, and, and uh, help them figure, I mean, that, that's part of the nature of Consolidated Loan Company that was that people were treated like people. My brother had a, um, told me that they had a, a system where if somebody walked in the door and you were the first person to see them, if you couldn't think of their name, you would just kind of click your fingers like this and somebody else would look up and go, oh, hey, Mr. Johnson, how you doing? <laughs> you know, so, uh, so everybody knows your name, that kind of thing. So they had a pretty good reputation. And so it, it, it was humbling to me to see that dad, while I was out marching in the streets for civil rights, my dad was helping people get put their kids through college and put you know additions on their houses and upgrade their their life. How about home ownership? Yeah, right. Were there people who never in a million years would have gotten a right. bank loan for right. a home? Right. Who at least were able to own their homes? Right. But I get respect in the black community when people find out who my dad was. They remember him. Did that shift the way you looked at your father? I guess. Yeah. Yeah. It did. He also told one of his dear friends, whose daughter is a dear friend of mine, and she told me that years later that when I was involved in the civil rights movement and doing stuff that was scaring them, you know, marching in the streets and getting involved in stuff that scared them, he said, if I were her age, I would do the same thing. So he was behind me, but he didn't want me to know it. He was just scared for me, afraid I'd get hurt. When I was at Emory at Oxford, a, a woman came and there was just a gathering in somebody's dorm room with this woman and she had come, I don't, I don't know her history, but I, my guess is that she knew what she was doing. But she went to work at a, a black um, elementary school in Social Circle, Georgia. And the situation, the, the, the conditions there were abhorrent. You know, she said that, that it's just it's terrible. She described it at great length, but it was just terrible. And she said, 
she, she was part of a group of people somehow that were organized, they were gonna boycott the schools and uh, boycott the downtown and a civil rights movement thing going on there. And she wanted to know if we would help, with, help them a freedom school, teach the kids. And so we went, yeah, we'll do that. You know, so I ended up going over there um, in my car, which had a Emirate Oxford sticker on the back. And I remember somebody in the back seat scraping off the sticker with a razor blade because we were told that if we got caught, we would be killed. My father came to visit. My parents came to visit one time, and there was a, there were signs around a meeting in the you know blah blah. We were all still organizing this. I said I got to go to this meeting. I'll be back in an hour. And he says, what kind of meeting? I said, I'll tell you about it later, blah, blah. And he was worried. So he went to get gas, and he went to a gas station, and he just kind of, you know, did his southern drawl thing. And he said, what do you think about these kids at Oxford getting involved with social circle? And uh, the guy goes, oh, you don't have to worry about those kids at Oxford getting involved in social circle. And he took him to a back room where there was an arsenal. <laughs> and Dad was pretty creeped out. And he came back, and he really didn't want me involved with that. He was scared for me. What ended up happening was um, we saw on TV people that we knew getting thrown into a, um, a paddy wagon and a, and a um, tear gas grenade thrown into the paddy wagon and then the door shut. And uh, it, it blew up. That whole situation blew up, and we were never actually asked to, to, to do the school. So, but that was my first experience with and I, that's where I got to know people that were organizers and things like that. That's when I started feeling like this was something I really wanted to be involved with. If we're struck by lightning today and all that survives is this little piece of audio, okay. uh, what is your legacy? What is my legacy? My children. <laughs> they're nice guys. They're, they're here to help. I raised them to be part of the crew. I, I just felt like that was important. They share your values. They do. So your values are being passed on. Mm -hmm. They respect what I've done, and and uh, I don't know how I don't know how you know I don't know if it's going to come you know if if the opportunity to do something about it presents itself. But one of them is working on um, alternative energy. He wants to try to develop alternative energy. The other two, they just they just know which way is up, and I, I value that. Well, I have immense respect for you. Well, thank you. <laughs> I have immense respect for you, too. I thank you for your time. Well, thank you for your time. Thanks for being interested. These things die if people don't write it, take note of them. Thanks, Nancy. Thank you. When Nancy and I were talking about civil rights and the making of the racial makeup of South Georgia, she recommended a book called The Half Has Never Been Told half has never been told, Slavery and the Making of American Capitalism by Edward Baptist. And I bought it, and I haven't cracked it yet. It's quite intimidating. It explains a great deal about the makeup of the politics and the demographics of Georgia, which is, you know, of course, the focal point of a lot of political action now. Uh, next week, another fascinating woman from my hometown as we come up on 100 episodes and about 40,000 downloads from six continents all over the world as Man Listening approaches its two-year anniversary. Amazing. Thanks for being with us. Man Listening is a production of Unmediated LLC in cooperation with the Queen City Podcast Network and Balto Creative Media. Allison Andrews at Andrews Creative and Rachel Clapp-Miller are developmental producers. 
Sally Higgins at Higgins and Owens tries to keep us legal. Our music is A Day at the Park by the group Pictures of the Floating World. Your announcer is Catherine Smith. That's me. Please go to our Patreon page. You'll find us at patreon.com. Look for Man Listening. One word, no spaces. We hope you'll join us by becoming a member. A small investment can raise up the conversation. If you want exclusive member merch, like a t-shirt, we can arrange that too. I just want to thank you from the bottom of my heart to everyone who has supported Man Listening in whatever way you have from the very beginning. Thanks so much. Don't forget to support us at Patreon. We believe one voice can change the conversation. Click the subscribe button and next week you'll hear. We do not realize that where you and I are sitting within walking distance of where we grew up, there are people who will go to bed cold, they will go to bed hungry, they will go to bed in places that we would not even consider being a bed. That's next week on Man Listening. Thanks.